making money easy to talk about and talking about money also helps women advocate for negotiating their prices if they're an entrepreneur. It helps women negotiate their pay. The more that we negotiate our pay and we can close that pay gap with men, if your company has a matching 401k, guess what? That's more matching 401k dollars as well. All right, so Kelly, welcome to the show. How are you doing this morning? I'm doing awesome, and it's very timely because today is my book's first birthday. It came out oh. a year ago today, so lots of things to celebrate this Wednesday. It's a very timely conversation. Happy birthday. Yeah. <laughs> they say, uh, you know, writing a book's like giving birth. That's what they say. It is, because, and it's the same thing, because everybody keeps asking, when are you going to have another book? <laughs> when are you going to have another baby? Yeah. And I just had somebody ask me that yesterday, and I'm like, I, I don't know. It's still incubating. It's still incubating, mm. and that's okay. You know what, Kelly, this is kind of interesting before we dive too deep. Uh, I'm actually writing a book and then I got a little bit sidetracked. I, this is weird. I started writing another book. Yeah. How crazy is that? I didn't it's finish the crazy. first, I didn't finish the first one, but I start like, like I, I started a, a whole different book. Is that crazy or what? No, Trevor, I think that that's something that we should normalize because here's the thing, you know, we were talking about my book, Closing the Confidence Gap. And so many times when we start off writing a book, there's just so much doubt and imposter feelings like, oh my gosh, is anybody going to read this? And I don't know what I'm going to talk about. And I think so often that keeps people from even getting started. And so to normalize what you went through, when I first started writing my book, I hired someone to help me a coach because let's just be honest, like I kept setting a goal to write a book and like the end of the year would come and the book hadn't magically written itself. And so I'm like, okay, I need help. And so when I hired this person, I owed her like 5,000 words every month. And through the writing of those words, like it just got me into action. And that action actually produced a lot of clarity through just those really crappy first drafts. But what happened was, is it switched. The book I thought that I was writing didn't end up being the book that I wrote. I ended up writing what became Closing the Confidence Gap. And so I just think it's really awesome that you shared that because I think we should just normalize that. I think so often people wait for clarity before they get into action. Like, oh, I need to know exactly what book I'm going to write. But you just demonstrated how powerful it is. No, I started writing and then the clarity came and it ends up being this other book. And I think authors will tell you that happens all the time because I know that it happened to me for sure. Yeah, definitely. It's kind of crazy. Um, and and I think this is actually, they're actually going to be end up being two books. But the one that I originally started writing, uh, I think will launch second. I don't think it's going to be the first book, which I really wanted it to be the first book, but it's not going to be the first book. It's going to be the second book. Anyway, it's just kind of weird how that all came about. But um, so I thought I would ask you if that's a normal thing or not. But um, I also want to ask you, OK, can you talk to me a little bit about your journey and what inspired you to not only become a leadership coach, but also what started your journey in writing that book, Closing the Gap, uh, The Confidence Gap? What, what started that and what inspired you to do that? Yeah, you know, if you would have asked me when I was a little girl, I would have told you I always wanted to write a book. Like I would sit at my parents' like old computer with a black screen and the orange, you know, letters and hack out books. But, you know, nothing ever came of it. I just loved books and I was an avid reader and I was like, I'm going to write a book someday. I didn't know what it was going to be about. Well, you know, I go to high school, I go to college, um, I have just like a basic political science major, I end up getting a job at a bank because they offer tuition reimbursement. And I was like, you know, this is kind of cool. Like, I like money. It's nine to five. It's clean. <laughs> you know, it was it was interesting to me. And I ended up spending about 
14 years in banking. And, you know, as I continued to accelerate in my banking career, starting in sales and eventually going into sales training and then human resources and um, training and leadership development marketing, I didn't really couldn't put my finger on it at the time. But one of the things I really noticed, and I, I think this is still true in the finance industry, was it was all run by men. You know, I, a lot of my colleagues and entry level uh, managers were women. But as I really started to think about my career aspirations, I remember looking at the top and I'm like, gosh, I'm like, nobody looks like me there. And this is fascinating because we're kind of a best place to work for women, but there's like no women in leadership. And, you know, in 2008, 2009, we didn't really have language to talk about that in terms of gender gaps and imposter syndrome and all that sort of stuff. Well, as I started to accelerate in my career, and especially as I moved into the HR field, I started to witness these gaps in action, not only personally, you know, through my own doubts and the way I would hold my own self back, but I remember being in human resources and like, um, let's say a job was posted. A man would come to me and say, Kelly, this job looks amazing. It looks so exciting. I'm throwing my hat in the ring. Who do I got to talk to? And, you know, I might be like, well, you know, I don't know if you're quite qualified, you know, I mean, motivated. Yes. Whereas women might come to look to me and say, Kelly, this job is on the posting board, but you know, I only meet like eight of the 10 qualifications. Maybe I need to go back to school. Maybe I need a certificate. And we were like, oh no, please apply. Or they would say things like, well, maybe I should not ask for that full salary because I'm not quite qualified. The talk track was so different. So the women, what you're saying is like, they just felt super unqualified yeah. where, where the men, like it was a little bit different. It was just different. The mentality was different. Right. And I just started to notice these trends on how like men just was like, well, that looks cool. I'm going to go for it. Right. Like Kanye West president sounds cool. Like, let's go for it. Whereas women just had like this deeper talk track of, am I qualified? Am I ready? Um, do I need more education? What do I do with all this doubt? You know, and that just really started to percolate. So as I left banking, I went to technology that was still run mostly by men. I left technology, went to go work for a leadership development um, consulting organization. And it was at that time where I really started to see these trends emerge as I work with organizations. And honestly, when I was working in consulting, I was traveling a lot. I was exhausted. I had just gotten remarried. My daughter was becoming a teenager. She was more involved. And I was like, I need to get off the road. But the one thing that I loved was coaching. And I started my coaching practice in 2019, right before the pandemic. And I was doing just kind of generic leadership coaching and speaking. And then the pandemic hit. And as many folks who were in that time know, I lost like 80 to 90% of my income overnight because companies were canceling their corporate coaching contracts, their speaking engagements. And so I really kind of had this come to Jesus moment of like, okay, well, if I can't lose any more income and things can't get any worse... Like, what do I really love to do? Like, what could I do all day long and not get paid for it? Because I'm literally not getting paid right now. And I thought back to all those conversations I'd had with women about growth and confidence and professional development and asking and negotiating. And I loved it. I was like, well, that's what I should focus on. So I decided, you know what, maybe I'll just start by tweaking my LinkedIn post that week to talk directly to women about these things. And it's been almost, you know, five, it's been four years and I just haven't looked back, like really talking to and addressing some of the systemic issues that are happening for women, um, not only in the corporate ranks, but just in our environment, but then also giving women tools to thrive in spite of those things, 
was really just teaching them everything I wished I would have had back in corporate. And that's where the book came from and all my programs. And, and now we're here. I love that. So, I mean, a lot of times I find, and even with myself personally, that the hardships that we go through, right? Um, a coach typically gets inspired from wanting to help other people not go through the same hurdles, right? Not, not want to have to go through those hiccups. And uh, like recently for myself, I'm finding myself, uh, you know, I'm starting up a, a secondary business where I'm going to be helping uh, agents and advisors in financial services to understand how to navigate compliance, how to create content, market their business. And like, I'll give you an example. What you were talking about where you said, you know, at the top, you didn't see a lot of people that looked like you. Right. Uh, I was talking with uh, someone that's on my team and, and he's uh, he's black and I asked him, uh, we were talking about Dave Ramsey and I said, and I, I literally didn't know this answer. And I asked him a question. I said, Hey, so, you know, Dave Ramsey, he's like, you know, this, this big financial guru and all this stuff. And, you know, uh, he's got this, you know, media empire and everybody knows who he is and he's got all these programs and all this stuff. And I said, who is, who's the black Dave Ramsey? And I literally, I literally was like, I didn't know. I'm like, who is that? Is there someone in your space like that? And he didn't know either. And I was like, we need to change that. You know what I mean? Like, we need to change that. We need someone to represent. And uh, so so I'm helping my team, you know, to, to become more visible, to be seen, to be recognized, uh, to create content, to market themselves and be compliance friendly. Because in my industry, it's really, really, really tight. OK, they make it difficult. It's not easy. So. Um, Again, the reason why I'm going into all of this is because um, it, it comes from a place of where where I had to go through those hurdles. I had to go through all of that to figure it out myself. And so now I'm trying to make sure they don't have to go through that same, you know, headache and, and, and all of that. And so trying to save them that that trouble, you know. So I love what you said there because it sounds like it's very similar to, to your journey as well. Yeah, 100 percent. I always just say I simply wrote the book that I needed to read. And I think that that's so powerful because oh, sometimes. Snap. Hold up. <laughs> that's a good one. Mic drop. Um, but I think that's just so powerful because I think sometimes when we're in our struggles alone, we feel alone. Like we are the only one. And I think that that is just such a powerful reminder that, you know, our ego, sometimes the shame involved loves to keep us silent. Um, and so I love what you're doing. Not only from a person, I talk about this in the book. My mom was a financial advisor. I worked for a financial advising firm. I'm married to a financial advisor and there's a lack of representation in the industry and there's a lot of compliance. And so that's definitely a struggle that- Hey, women um, <laughs> women crush it in this industry, by the way, just so y'all know, uh, women freaking crush in financial services. Like they do, like, you know, and I'm like, you know, and, and because to your point, it's it typically was a male dominated industry right and then and but anyways women women do very very good in this industry so any women out there that are listening and you're thinking hmm maybe i want to make a career transition financial services could be could be a good spot for you i'm just saying just throwing that out there it is and i love that we're talking about this because you know one of the topics that i address in my book that's very much related to what you're working on is the, the money conversation 
You know, when I was a little girl, I wanted to be a meteorologist. I was going to be the TV weather girl. It's all I ever wanted to do my entire life. I got to college and they stuck me in calculus and physics. And I was like, oh, and then I realized I was going to have to work the six and 10 o'clock news every evening. And I was like, oh, I don't want to do that. I want to be home. So there, here I am going into banking and, you know, working in the, sometimes the, the finance and the investment field. And it's kind of a weird thing because it's like, gosh, I went from the easiest topic to talk about, which is the weather to the hardest topic there is to talk about, which is finances. And, you know, one of the things I'm passionate about with women that I've seen from an HR perspective and even from a money perspective is how hard it is to talk about money. And I think it is hard to talk about money because let's just let's just go back in recent history. It was 1974 when women finally got the ability to sign checks and have a bank account and credit in their own name without a male co-signer. So when we think about what happened systemically, money is, quote unquote, new for women. So of course, men have been financial advisors. Of course, it's been men talking about money. The money conversations were different for men growing up, right? It's about how much money do you make? How are you going to provide? And so I think, you know, increasing representation of this in this industry is not only going to help women with their long-term wealth, their savings goals, but I think, you know, making money easy to talk about and talking about money also helps women advocate for negotiating their prices if they're an entrepreneur. It helps women negotiate their pay. And as you and I well both know, you know, the more that we negotiate our pay and we can close that pay gap with men, if your company has a matching 401k, guess what? That's more matching 401k dollars as well. And so the whole thing is just one big circle. And so I, I love that we're having this conversation about normalizing the money conversation because it helps women and their communities too. Um, okay. You also talk about the concept of turning flaws into a competitive advantage, okay? So I want you to elaborate on that, and then maybe you could give me some examples uh, of either yourself or maybe some of your clients who have done this. Okay, I'll tell you my story, and then maybe if you're open to it, I can do a little coaching on you too with this, Ooh, and we can demonstrate it. how it works. Okay. Oh, I, I I love being the guinea pig, by the way. So yes, the answer yeah. is yes. Okay. Yeah. So I talk about this in the book, and I I really talk about my great grandma. You know, she. Um, we go out to our family farm um, to do work, you know, once or twice a year. And every time I'm out there, I see this old bus from like the 1960s out there. And, you know, it's old and rusted out and still sitting there. But we love to see it because it reminds us of like how strong she was because she bought that bus with cash in the 1960s. And so while you might be thinking, well, yeah, people buy cars with cash all the time. Let's pause about what we just talked about. My grandma Ryan, a thousand acre farm and ranch as a widow in the 1960s. She bought that bus with cash because remember, she couldn't take out a loan in her name. She couldn't take out a loan to fund any sort of planting or crops or farming, et cetera. But luckily my grandma was super shrewd. Um, when she was young in the 1915s, her parents owned a hardware store and her dad let her come to work. So she learned about cost of goods sold, marketing, human behavior, selling. She knew how much things cost. She was 4'11" but she probably had the stature of somebody six feet tall because, you know, my, she primarily raised my dad and my dad would tag along with her to business deal dealings. And she would walk into these hardware stores, these crop feed stores or whatever it was, machine parts. And she would go to the, the own, like the, the employees just didn't even deal with her. They saw her walking in and they went and got the owner. And she would say, I want this for this price. And she would stand there silently until she got her way. 
And, you know, back in that time, she was probably called a lot of things. Remember, she did not adhere to gender norms of the stay-at-home mom cooking type. I'm sure she was called shrewd, bossy, a witch, assertive, and aggressive. But because she was all of those things, she ran this farm. She hired help. She paid salaries. She fed hungry families. She built a legacy for her family because she was all those things. And I think sometimes, you know, we show up at work and we've been called a lot of things. I know my whole life I've been called too direct, too blunt, too unemotional. And when we spend a lot of time self-censoring, it exhausts us. When really we have to start thinking about, well, how are actually these things, like my directness, my superpower, what are the specific situations that only my directness is needed? And, you know, some people have been called too emotional, too chatty, too whatever it is. And so we, you know, one of the things I talk about in the book and I do with my clients is, you know, that causes a lot of doubt. It causes a lot of imposter feelings. We get scared of speaking up because oh, I don't want to be perceived as too blank. And so what we really try to do then is to say, well, how can you blend that approach in alignment with your values? So if I have leadership values that I want to be seen as creative and loving and respectful, how can I be direct and respectful? How can I be direct and loving? And what unique situations call for this approach? And how can I use it to advance my career, initiatives, whatever that is? So do you mind if I ask you a couple questions? Let's go. Guinea okay. pig it up. Let's do it. All right. It. So Trevor, have you ever been called something to something? Trevor, you're just too blank. Oh, yeah. Uh, too aggressive. Okay. Uh, I rode the short bus. They told me I was ADD and ADHD and tried to put me on medication. Uh, too violent. Okay. Because I used to fight a lot when I was a teenager. Uh too aggressive, too violent, too crazy. They used to throw me in a padded room. I'm not even kidding. In in a special ed class. Uh, so yeah, I've been told I was a lot of stuff. Okay. And, uh, but yeah, yeah, yeah. To answer your question. Yes. Yeah. Which one sticks out to you? I heard aggressive <laughs> or crazy. Is there one you want to kind of, we'll pick, we'll pick one just for today. Just and work on one. Uh, let's go with aggressive. aggressive. Let's go aggressive. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, now that you're older, Mm-hmm. How much time, just maybe consciously or unconsciously, do you think about self-censoring? Gosh, okay, don't be too aggressive here, Trevor. Don't be too aggressive. Does that still come up for you? <sighs> what a great question. Uh, no, I, I think I really, um, I, I think I really got rid of my filter, um, and I think podcasting helped me to do that. To be honest with you. Uh, but there was a time I think that I was probably I, I would try to think to censor myself because you know, uh, for whatever reason, but yeah, no, I think that, uh, I found my voice, uh, but there was a time where I didn't have my voice. So yes. Um, but I don't, I don't think I do that a whole lot anymore. Yeah. Well, one of the things I notice about you and your podcast approach is you have a lot of energy, but that energy is quite focused. So it sounds like you've done some work here. So when you think about yourself as a leader in your industry or as a podcaster, like what are three words that you want people to use to describe you? Ooh, um, impact, uh, motivation, um, let's see, impact, motivation, transformation. Mm. So when you think about blending that, like how have you, or in what areas can you impact where you can show up and be aggressive, 
and motivational? Like, what does that look like for you? Oh, it, it was actually, uh, I had a coaching call with my team. <laughs> I had a coaching call with my team, but I told them, I was like, listen, I'm not here to be your friend. I was like, I, I you know, when you think about a coach, a lot of times they're going to push you, they're going to lean on you, they're going to, you know, look, they're going to make you better. They're going to make you sharper. They're going to, but it, but it's sometimes it's going to be uncomfortable. I might say some things. You might think I'm a little bit crazy, but I'm not here to be your friend. I'm here to get you a result, period. And if I can't get you a result, then I have failed, you know? And so I think in that environment, you know, coaching, training, um, I can be aggressive and I can push people. I can lean on people to, to get them off their butt to go get the things done that they know they need to do. But otherwise, if it's onto their own devices, they won't do it. Yeah, I love it. So it sounds like you've already offered up an answer to my next question is what are those unique situations that call for your unique blend of, you know, an aggressive approach blended with motivational qualities, right? To, to temper that out. And you said coaching, training, podcasting is one. Is there any other unique scenarios that that can benefit from your special blend of, we need to make a new word. It's like, a, how do you combine aggressive and motivational? Aggressionational. <laughs> your aggressionational <laughs> approach. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think the the answer there is speaking. And that's something that I'm, I am uh, like, like professional speaking on stages. I'm actually going uh next month well actually this month i can't believe we're in we're in november already uh i'm going this month to 10x stages and uh gonna learn you know how to go crush the stage i've been on a few but i haven't been on a lot and so i'm like you know what i need a coach okay i need the 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 training on that side so that i can make a bigger impact but i think on stage is another place where you can speak from a position of authority Right. And you can get up there and, and, you know, you can lead people, right. You can lead people and people need to be led. I feel like, you know, um, people want to be led. People are looking for a leader, you know, they're, they're looking for that person that they can follow, you know? And, uh, so anyways, I think that the next stage for me is stages. Mm -hmm. There you go. I love it. So for those of you listening, just so you can apply this to your own, it's really asking yourself, what's that thing you've always been called? Aggressive, assertive, bossy, emotional, talkative, chatty, whatever it is. And then doing, you know, what I asked Trevor to do, which is, okay, well, but what are your values? And a good way to kind of get some clues on what your values are. And I define values as those things we stand for. Okay. What we want to be known for in all situations. And so you can ask yourself, okay, what are three words that I want people to use to describe me? What do I stand for as a leader and entrepreneur? And just come up with three adjectives. Those will just give you some clues. And then you can blend that. Okay, well, how can I be emotional and strong? How can I be direct and loving? How can I be assertive, you know, and empathetic? You know, whatever words come up for you. And then just doing what I asked Trevor to do, which is well, what are those unique situations that call for that approach? And how can you bring that to make impact and, you know, be transformational, lead other people, be motivational, come up with a brand new idea, whatever it is. And so I just wanted to unpack what you and I did so folks could do it on their own. That is so good. Kelly, this is freaking awesome. This is going to be a great episode, by the way. This is awesome. And, you know, something I was thinking about. OK, so I, what I was I just telling you? So my my next uh, step or evolution is stages and things like that. And, uh, you know, the biggest fear that I have is, well, it's most people have it, but it's actually uh, public speaking. Okay. Um, and I've, I've overcome a lot of that. Well, actually, I don't say I've overcome it. I haven't overcome what, what it is, 
is that I figured out how to turn it into fuel. I turn it into that. I take that that fear and I turn it. It actually excites me now. Now I'm running towards the stages. I used to run away. I used to literally hide. I'm not even kidding you. I used to hide out. And so now I'm running towards instead of running away. And uh, but. The reason I feel like that is why is why is the fear there? The fear is because um, you know, it's your gift. You know, it's your gift. It's your calling. It's your mission. And the enemy wants to steal that from you. He does not want you to be successful because imagine that. Let's just say I am successful. And now all of a sudden I'm speaking in front of thousands of people and able to make that impact and that transformation and that motivation. Well, I'm changing lives now. I'm able to help people. I'm able to serve people, right? Well, the enemy doesn't want me to do that. So the enemy's going to throw all kinds of things in my way, fear and excuses and doubt and all of these things to prevent me from being that person. He does not want me to be that person. Okay. So for those of you that, that are listening right now and you have a dream or something that you want to go do, and I want you to think about your deepest, darkest fear. Okay. And what I want you to know about that deepest, darkest fear is typically your gift is wrapped in it. Okay. Your gift is inside of it. And we just got to break through that fear. So what are your thoughts on that, Kelly? What are you, what are you thinking? Well, I know you're talking about the thief comes to steal, kill and destroy, right? If you're, mm -hmm. if you're the, the Bible reading type, but Joseph Campbell also says um, the cave you fear to enter holds the treasure that you seek. And so one of the things that I talk about, I have a whole chapter on this in my book, and here's what I'm going to tell folks. Anytime you are doing something that is a goal for you, you are probably stretching your comfort zone. And when you are stretching your comfort zone, you are moving out of that nice, comfy, snuggly place that your ego likes, which is comfort, routine, knowing what's going to happen. Here's the thing. I've been speaking in front of audiences for almost 20 years as a, as a trainer, as a keynote speaker, pop, like doing things like this. I still get nervous. And I think what I really experience in my own self and what I've experienced with my clients, and, and I've interviewed folks like Ariana Huffington, Indra Nooyi, who is the former CEO of Pepsi, Padmasri Warrior, who runs tech companies in Silicon Valley. And we've had this conversation about, I remember asking Indra, I'm like, you know, with all those leaps you made in your career to eventually run Pepsi, like, were you nervous? And she's like, oh yeah. And if you read her book, you know, she really makes this thing. It's like, you really just have to learn to get comfortable with that discomfort. And so when I'm working with my clients, I really try to help them reframe that doubt is a normal, healthy human emotion. And it is going to be present every time we stretch our comfort zone. In fact, you know, I think so often we say, well, I, I need to wait until I feel confident to do something. You know, they think that there's going to be this magical place that's going to happen where they're always feeling confident and like, oh, I'm going to speak up and go on stage. And I love to remind them, I'm like, there are people in this world who don't feel doubt. They're sociopaths. And my husband and I watch them on Dateline every Friday night with a margarita. And I think to myself, these people really could have benefited from some more doubt before they, you know, took out the life insurance policy before they, you know, killed their partner. But all, all joking aside, I am saying this to normalize doubt, normalize, 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 normalize. Because in that gift of doubt, doubt keeps us humble. When we're feeling a little bit of doubt, you know, we're prompted. I'm going to rehearse this one more time. 
You know, when we're feeling nerves, we think about our keynote speech or what we're going to speak up and say in the meeting and say, you know what, let me think about who's in that room to make sure that I'm saying this the way that I want it to be said. Preparation, doubt keeps us connected. If I never felt any doubt or any nerves, I would never stop and think about my audience and how I want my audience to feel. I would only be obsessed about myself and my own feelings. And so what I really want folks is to remember, and you know, one of the things I've learned from coaching all these leaders, and even in my own experience, is our job necessarily is not to constantly strive to feel more confident. Our job is to get more comfortable with doubt. Because if we can get more comfortable with the presence of everyday doubt and nerves, we can learn how to take action while also feeling doubtful, while also feeling nervous. Because here's the thing, confidence is a side effect of taking action. It's very unlikely that you're going to like rock star feel confident every time you stretch your comfort zone. It's that taking the action while also feeling all those weird nerves and doubt that leads to confidence when you've come 100%, 100%. And you know, just for the audience listening right now, just to give you behind the scenes every time. Okay. And I've done over five, over 500 episodes of the, who, you know, show. Okay. Every single time I get behind this microphone, I get nervous every single time. Okay. But you know what else? I've done it so many times. I got so many reps that I also like, I don't even have to think too much about it. Okay. Like I know, I know what I need to do. Like I know I've just done it so many times. I know exactly what I need to do and I can do it now with actually a lot less preparation than I used to. I used to have to have so much preparation. Now I can do it with a little less preparation. But Kelly, to your point of what you were talking about earlier, you said when when I came in to the show, you said, oh, man, you, you got a lot of energy and all that kind of stuff. That's super energetic. Like that actually comes from a place of nervousness. OK, and it does. It comes from like the pit of my stomach because I, I every single time I do it, I get I'm, I'm nervous. And so that energy comes through. Wow, wow, wow. But then all of a sudden about, you know. Two minutes in, I'm, I'm feeling good. You know, I'm feeling comfortable, ready to have just a true conversation. Like, that's what I like about this is a true conversation. Yes, I've got questions here up on my screen, ready to rock and roll just in case something goes sideways. OK, and those questions are there to keep me on a track. OK, they're there to keep me on a format. And uh, uh, and also to make sure that I'm doing right by you, Kelly, because I want to make sure that I, I get uh, to highlight you and spotlight you as the guest, because that's my job as the host is to, sh is to shine a light on you. So I love this. This episode is almost like a coaching session for myself. It's pretty good. I love it. This has been fun. Uh, but I do have some more questions I want to ask you. Okay. Okay. So I know you also talk about five salary myths that keep you uh, from, from more money. Right. So, so some, some myths that keep you from getting more cash flow. Can you share some insights on these myths and how people can negotiate for a better compensation, because I think that's something, especially during we had the great resignation. A lot of people changing jobs and stuff like that. Uh, people were like, hey, I need more money. OK, so how can people do that? How can people negotiate for a better compensation? Yeah, let's talk about the myths real quick. And we've talked about a couple, as you know, you and I were having a conversation already. Myth number one is a lot of people think that it's rude to ask. And I've heard that, you know, from my HR experience, I've heard that, you know, gosh, even with my entrepreneur friends who are negotiating their rates, like, oh, it just feels so rude to ask for more, you know, and I think especially for women, we've been kind of told this talk track, like, you should just be grateful. 
men sometimes haven't quite heard that, but I think maybe a lot of women listening will go, uh-huh, yeah, I've been told that. And so that whole myth, it's rude to ask, can really keep us from negotiating our salary, um, setting our prices appropriately if we are an entrepreneur. And so what I really encourage my clients to do and what I even have to do for myself sometimes is to be like, okay, what is the opposite of that statement? And I'll ask a client. They might say something like, well, it can be helpful to ask. Amazing. Can you think of three examples where it's been helpful for you to make an ask? And usually they can come up with three examples. And so what we really are trying to do is just to get a little more mental flexibility around that, showing that, yeah, it's actually just as true that it's helpful to ask or beneficial to ask or, you know, whatever the opposite is that they come up with. You know, the the second um, thing that I often hear, too, especially in salary negotiations, is that um, we shouldn't talk about money and benefits until the end of the conversation. Or if you're an entrepreneur, like we should get all the logistics out and then talk about money. As an HR person who spent a lot of time in job interviews, I always took the tactic that we are going to talk about money right now. Because if I get you, Trevor, on the phone, interested for a job, and I can only offer you 85000 when you're looking for 125000 like, let's just game over this. I'm not going to waste your time. Don't waste my time. Interviewing, job searching is so time consuming for everyone involved. So my thing was like, let's fail fast here. And so I really encourage my clients, like, let's have these money and benefit conversations up front because then we can cut ties and not waste anyone's time. Agreed. And, yeah. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. Why waste a whole bunch of time? You know, we're not even in the ballpark. Okay. So we're going to go five, six, seven rounds of interviews for this. Yeah. No. no, just to find out you're not even in the ballpark. That doesn't make any sense. Anyway, exactly. go ahead. Yeah. And same thing with entrepreneurs. So like when people email me and say, Hey, can you speak at my conference? Our immediate response, my team is, yep, Kelly's available these days. These are Kelly's rates. Because you know what, let's not even get on a call if they're like, oh, okay, that's out of my price range. And so I think it's just really a respectful thing to do. And a professional HR person, remember what I said earlier, for HR people, talking about money is like talking about the weather. We literally do it all day long. It's just, it's just a conversation. The third thing is that, um, and this is where I see a lot of folks get tripped up, is if the job offer is more than what I currently make, I shouldn't negotiate. I see so many people fall into that trap of like getting a job offer and they're like, oh, this is 20,000 more than my currently salary. I'm going to be rich. I'm rich. I did that with my first job. Like it, I was working for an investment firm and I went to go work for a bank and they paid me more. And I was like, okay. You know, when really the smart thing to do is to go out and I'll, I'll give this tip at the end is to go out and look at market data. What is the market paying for this role? Because the question we should be asking is, is, is not, is this more than what I currently make is, is what I'm making aligned to the market salaries? Because for women and people of color who have traditionally been underpaid, it can be easy to continue that cycle of underpayment if we are basing a job offer off their previous salary and not off of market. Um, the fifth thing or the, the fourth thing is that um, lots of times people, I see people try to use their life situations to get the number that they want. Things like, um, and I've experienced this as an HR person, someone saying, well, I really want my wife to stay home. So I need X dollars. And that's great. I'm glad that that is a goal for you. But if we negotiated everyone's pay based on their life situations, then people with eight kids might be making more than the CEO, right? There wouldn't be a lot of pay parity. 
And so why people think, oh, that's intuitive. I should talk about my life and my situation and why I need to earn this amount. That seems logical. But what's actually more logical is that we have standard market pay for certain roles. That way we have pay equity in organizations. And somebody that doesn't have really extenuating circumstances isn't making significantly more than somebody who you know, doesn't have those things through no fault of their own. And then the last one, the fifth one is um, lots of times people think money is the only thing that they can negotiate. And it's not. As an entrepreneur, sometimes if I, I have a, a speaking engagement coming up next week that couldn't quite meet my speaking rate, but one of the things that they offered was, well, you can bring your books and sell a bunch of your books and here's a, uh, we're going to do some marketing activities for you. Great. Like that helped close the gap. There's other things that we can negotiate if it's the right fit and what we want. The other thing that we can do if we're in corporate is sometimes we can negotiate things like flexible schedules, how many days in the office that we work. For some higher level positions, they can tend to negotiate vacation days. And then the thing that I am loving people negotiating right now is not just tuition reimbursement, but professional development reimbursement. So many of my clients are asking for an annual stipend to go to a conference, to hire a leadership or an executive coach. These things are absolutely adding to that. And I love that people are asking for it because it's not just a benefit for the employee. It's a benefit to the company. Like I'm going to invest in myself and then give it back to you. And so I see a lot of those myths that really hold people back from more money. And so then you might be thinking, okay, well, how do I make that ask? And I have some pretty simple steps. I actually have, um, if you go to my website at kellyreithompson.com and go to the free section, I have a salary negotiation guide you can download. So you can, don't need to furiously write all this down. Um, but the first thing is, is always to go out and um, take a look at market data. With LinkedIn and salary transparency laws, there's so many places you can look and see what that job is being paid. Payscale.com, Glassdoor, salary.com, LinkedIn, your state. Um, go ahead. Uh, I was going to say on that note, okay, what is your thoughts on, and we'll, we'll get into um, the rest of the stuff you were talking about, but I wanted to ask you, what are your thoughts on, you know, companies advertising, you know, their salaries for these jobs? Like, like almost like I remember when uh, I was in, I came from the auto industry and I remember when true car came in and true car just basically showed the price and the discounts and da, 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 da. And like, Man, it really shook up the industry because the back and forth, the haggle, the hassle, that that was gone. I mean, a lot of that disappeared all of a sudden because of true car. It's transparent pricing, right? What do you what do you think about that? About companies just coming out and being transparent and getting rid of this this back and forth. Do you think that's a good idea or a bad idea for companies? Oh, I'm always team transparency. Like again, like put yourself in the job seeker shoes. You see this job that looks really cool. Um, and they have, let's say you apply for it and you're like, oh, geez, like that was, they're paying way less than I thought. When I just see the range, this job pays between 100 dollars and $130,000 per year, right? Probably depending on your years of experience and all that sort of stuff. Perfect. I'm in range. I'm going to apply. Nobody's wasting time. I am team transparency all over the place all of the time. And it's helped all of us level the playing field as job seekers. And that whole step one is go out and look at the market. Step two is to um, take an inventory of your skills, talents, and experience. Like this is not only, this is a great confidence booster to go back through your recent career history and say, what did I do? What did I impact? Who did I help? How much revenue did I generate? How much savings did I generate? What changes did I lead? Um, what risks did I mitigate? 
and really making sure that's in your resume and writing that down so that you can use that as evidence when you go in and you make your ask. So that's step two is to prep your ask. Step three is to practice your ask. Record yourself on your iPhone, Trevor, um, <laughs> or your Android. Um, do it in front of the mirror, practice in front of your dog, practice in front of your partner, but practice your ask. And then, you know, that way it's not the first time that you get it out. And then the last step is just to make your ask. Know your situation. So if you're in a job um, negotiation for a new job, you're probably talking to the recruiter about this. Okay, so you're going to make your ask in person. Maybe you're in your current job and you're asking for a raise because you've taken on some new responsibilities. I always tell folks, know your leader. Will your leader want an email first to kind of tee up the conversation before you have it? Or is your leader the type of person that's going to want to hash it out verbally and doesn't need an email because they don't read emails anyway? So there's no one right way here. It's about knowing your leader and having that conversation to make your ask. So do your market research, prep your ask, practice your ask, make your ask. And when you make your ask, state the, all those reasons why you are valuable to this organization, what you're going to contribute, what you're going to bring. Make your ask. And the last thing is be quiet. Ooh. Just be quiet. Don't do none of this. Oh, you know, Trevor, but you know, if you can't do that, I understand. Nope. Make your ask and shut up. Mm. Let's go. Listen, that's a car. That's a car business tactic right there. You know, you put, you put your numbers out there and you shut up. The first person that talks loses. Okay. Uh, I love that. I love that. I love that. What about timing? Yeah. Well, if what, you're going to go, go ahead. What, when's the right time, you know, and is there a bad time to ask for, for a raise or negotiate? That's a great question. When you're looking for a new job, the right time is, I love to keep it conversational. Let's start in the beginning about when you have a very first screening call with a recruiter that just says, can you tell me more about the salary range for this role? Even if it's been posted, let's just talk about it again. It's not hurting anybody. HR people, I'm telling you, I've done a lot of these on the other end being an HR person. We expect this, okay? We're waiting for it, I promise you. And men tend to do it more than women. So if you're in the job hunting uh, process. Let's do it up front. If you are in a role where you want to negotiate a raise, there's usually some trigger points. Okay. So the first trigger point might be at annual salary review time. Okay. Some companies just every year, they're going to have a salary review. It's starting to talk to your leader about everything that you've accomplished in your performance review. So maybe you can negotiate you know, a 5% bump, annual bump instead of a 3% bump is which, you know, what a lot of companies do. Another trigger for a salary conversation is if you've been given significantly new responsibilities, um, you know, things like you've taken on a whole additional team, maybe you've been promoted and you've had a title change and you're managing more complex work. You know, if the scope of your work has dramatically increased, if the levels of decisions that you are now making are significantly more visible and high risk. That's another opportunity to have a salary conversation. You know, I think too, especially for my friends and clients who work in like security, information technology, really fast growing industries, it's always good to even look every couple of years because that market for salaries moves so much that maybe their annual 3% bump isn't going to catch them up. 
So for, you know, folks who work in industries that have a lot of salary movement, like I always really encourage them, hey, it's probably good for you just to do a market analysis every two years or so, just to be sure that you're paid with all those new technology folks that are coming in with the organization. That's good. That is good. And also something to think about what you were talking about is some industries tend to go up real fast. Uh, there are some industries right now that are going down real fast. So, you know, like I'll give you an example with all the new, you know, AI stuff. I mean, there's a lot of jobs that are going away completely. Right. So if you find yourself in an industry that's kind of like disappearing, you know, and, and you may you may just be cautious about asking for that raise because they may be able to outsource you for cheaper or, you know, for less expensive. And so you're you're asking like they're already thinking about getting you the and you're over here asking for more. You're like, hey, can I get some more money? They're like, actually, yeah, we, we need to talk about that. We we need to talk about that. <laughs> and so what I would be telling my clients is that, you know, this is a really amazing opportunity for you to invest in some reskilling. And so if you find yourself working on projects that, you know, could be replaced partially, you know, using some AI tools, it's like, well, instead of like hiding our head in the sand, thinking that AI is going to go away, um, you know, and this something similar to this happened to me in, in a job where I had to start doing something that I was not a fan of, Trevor. I was mad and I stalled and I resisted and I used hope as my strategy that this thing would go away. And when I realized that it wasn't going to go away and in fact, um, my job was going to be in jeopardy if I didn't get on board, I kind of just used that opportunity to be like, OK, how is this happening for me? How can this be like learning this new skill, the funnest thing I never wanted to do? And so I kind of went all in on it and learned a bunch of things. And I'm so glad that I did because because I learned this skill and it was a, a tech skill I needed to use for, for marketing and training. It actually made me more marketable when I left that organization and went to go find something different. And so if you find that is happening to you, I think salary is not the right conversation. I think the right conversation to have is where do I need to get real reskilled so that I can stay competitive in this market and offer that as a competitive advantage that people will pay for in the future? Absolutely. I love what you just said there. That's a perfect example of what I'm going through right now, because I, I was talking about the compliance and the financial services and all of that. Right. Well, the the compliance side of it was, gosh, it was that thing for me where I'm like, oh, I did everything I could to go around the compliance fence. Like, I want to figure out how to how to do this around that fence. OK. And I was very creative about that. And I, and I did. And uh, but now I, I'm realizing that I should have just bulldozed through that fence instead of going around it. And uh, now that I'm figuring that out and I'm learning that roadmap and I'm learning that uh, blueprint, that's the blueprint that I'm going to be able to teach uh, and train. And it's going to be my biggest asset because I had to learn that. Right. And so but what I wanted to avoid so, so, so bad, I spent years avoiding it. I'm now just with tenacity plowing through it so that I can uh, train and teach it to everyone else so that they can grow. And so. Um, but yeah, it's kind of similar to what you were talking about. And that's actually made me more marketable because I, I've i learned something that I'm not the only one that wanted to avoid it. They all want to avoid it. Nobody wants to do it. It's a pain in the butt, right? So anyways, I found out the blueprint to make it easy for them. So uh, I'm excited about it. It's made me more marketable. Um, okay. 
So let's talk about your book real quick. Okay. While well, we got a few more minutes, uh, tell us it's, it's bit your book's birthday. Okay. Um, closing the confidence gap. What can readers uh, expect to learn from this book? Why should they pick up this book? And not only that, uh, you know, because it's the book's birthday, I'd love to hear maybe a transformation story, uh, you know, in the last year or so, what, what has it done for people? What, what has the, the transformation happened for people out there? Yeah. So I think a lot of people think that this book is going to be just like confidence tips and it's not. And that's what people actually say. They're like, this book, the best compliment I ever get about this book is this book is not what I thought it was going to be. And I'm like, I know. Um, because, you know, let's just talk quickly about the confidence gap. It's an actual thing that Wharton studied. And what they did was they wanted to figure out why does there seem to be this gender confidence gap between men and women? So they gave folks a standardized test in this test environment. And based on, they did, they did not tell them how they did on the test, but based on how they thought they did on the test, individuals were supposed to go and advocate for their performance and then, you know, ask for this kind of fictional job. Well, guess who did a better job advocating? The men. Guess who did a little better on the test? The women. And so the researchers said, well, maybe if we just tell women they did better than the test, then their confidence will follow suit. And so my book is the whole, actually, that's just not going to cut it. If we want to see more women, you know, showing up confidently, we need more women in the rooms where decisions are made. And so this book is a both and approach to confidence. It talks about all of the systemic issues that women face in the workplace um, or just as a worker today, the gender pay gap, the unpaid workload of women, lack of representation, likability biases, you know, lots of those things. It talks about all those systemic issues, but it also says, you know what? I wish we could change those systemic issues overnight. Would be so cool if we could, but let's be honest, we're not gonna. So now we have a choice to make. We can choose to thrive in spite of those issues. And so this book is laid out in chapters of ways that we can um, thrive, you know, and learn to lead with more clarity and confidence in spite of those issues, you know, by teaching us to really articulate what we stand for as a leader, um, to learn how to turn our flaws into strengths, like I did with you, you know, to talk about how that. You know, in our search for confidence, it's not always striving to be confident, how we get more comfortable with doubt. We talked about that today. Having money conversations, really learning how to trust yourself, how your intuition tells you yes or no, so that you aren't kind of blowing around with the wind or with whatever career advice you get, but really knowing what you've been put on this earth to do and how to move forward and take action on that. I really define confidence as the ability to trust yourself and to take action on that. And that's the goal of this book is to really help women get clarity on who they are and what they want and what they stand for. And then, you know, take action on that. And those action steps produce confidence. The book is filled with lots of stories. There's lots of storytelling in this book of my own personal stories, but it's also very practical. There's lots of tips that say, okay, try A, B, and C. And so when you talk about transformations, a lot of the things that I hear from readers, in fact, one I just, I heard last week, was, um, you know, individuals maybe who've been in jobs where they felt like, and you know, and I've been here too, they felt like maybe it was them, that maybe they should work harder. I need to work harder. I need to fix myself. I, I just need to do things differently. And, you know, that, that constant like self beating up is really impactful to your confidence, you know, and it really creates a lot of second guessing and doubt. And so the things that I hear after people read this book is they're like, you know, I realized that, you know, none of my career doubt or second guessing was me. I just realized that I was in a job that wasn't aligned to my values. 
And when I got clear about what my values were, I found an employer who aligned with them. I got really clear about my unique talents, what I uniquely bring, you know, to a relationship or an organization and, you know, how to really own these things that maybe I felt ashamed about in my personality. And so because of those things, I was able to get clear in my next right career steps and maybe advocated for, yeah, clarity. I advocated for a raise. I found the right career. I made, um, I had a client um, or a reader last week say, yeah, I made this career change I never would have done. And it's so much more aligned to my values and what I want to be working on and how I want to spend my energy. And those are the things that um, I love to hear. Most importantly, I love to hear stories and I've heard lots of them. Um, where people say, you know what? I had the courage. It gave me the courage to say no to something that I should have said no to two years ago. And it's been eating me alive because I have a lot of stories, th those in there too. So, so you said something a couple of times, I, you know, clarity, I think having clarity gives you the confidence to move forward because, um, actually, you know what? I had, uh, Ken Coleman on the show. Do you know Ken Coleman? Yeah. Yeah. Ken Coleman, um, in anyways, and he was talking about clarity. He's like saying that, you know, <clears throat> think about like, let's say you're lost. Okay. You don't have your GPS. Okay. You're lost. You're driving around. Like if you are completely lost, you don't know where you're at. What are you going to do? You're going to like pull over. You're going to be having anxiety. You're going to be kind of like fearful. Like, oh my gosh, where, where am I? I'm lost, you know? Um, but when you know where you're going, right, you, you just, you're just going, you have confidence, right? And so clarity Knowing, you know, where you want to go, having that clear direction gives you a little bit of boost. And, um, you know, imagine what you could do, right, if you had no doubt, absolutely zero doubt of failure. Like if you, if you knew you could not fail, like what would you go do? Like imagine you had a magic wand, okay, and you knew you could like you could do anything. Like, you know, when your parents tell you, you can be anything. If you could. What would you go do? What What is it that you would go do? Um, now comes the issue of clarity. Can you do it, right? Are you going to be able to do it, right? How to do it, right? I think that's the next question. But if you have clarity on what you want to do, you'll figure out the how. Like, you'll figure out how to do it. You, does that make sense? Oh, yeah. I tell people all the time, too, is, you know, I flip that question a little bit and say, what's worth doing even if it didn't work out? A lot of people can say, you know, oh, you know, kind of like what I did when I didn't have clarity on my business after COVID. It was like, but what is worth doing even if I don't make another time? Because it is so important to me and my mission and my core and my values and my talents. And I'm so passionate about it. It's so worth doing even if it doesn't work. For me, that was coaching women. And that's how I got clarity on it. And, you know, I think a lot of times too, you know, we think, oh, I need to take all these big steps. But one of the things I talk about in the book is, you know, clarity comes through action, not through trying to think yourself through action. And sometimes we don't know what the right next step is, especially when we're in that weird, gross, liminal space where the past doesn't fit, but the future isn't here yet, is we just take itty bitty tiny steps in alignment with our values. And that's why I always start with values is because sometimes we don't know how this is all going to work out, but we can say, okay, what's the next right step that is aligned with my values and the person I want to become itty bitty, tiny turtle step. Absolutely. That's how you eat an elephant. You know what I'm saying? One bite at a time. Okay. That's how you do it. I tell people that, okay, you got to eat the elephant one bite at a time, one little baby step. Okay. Uh, Cause otherwise you're going to look at it and you're going to go, oh my gosh, I can't, this mountain's too big. I can't, it's too big. I can't do it. No, break it down. Okay. Break that sucker down. 
into those little incremental little steps and just one little step at a time and consistency, you'll get it done. Right? It's kind of like the whole book thing. Like if you look at writing a book, oh my gosh, that's a big project, right? But just break it down. Like you first, you know, break it down into the like the concepts and the little chapters that you're going to write. Like just break it down and get started because otherwise you're never going to do it if you look at it as a whole. It'll never happen. You're just going to be so over, right? You get what I'm saying? Those are like, oh, this <laughs> is too much. One chapter at a time. Kelly, this has been awesome. You guys need to go pick up that book, Closing the Confidence Gap. You need to go do that and do me a favor, okay? I want you to pick up that book, take a picture, post it on social media, okay? And tell Kelly what's something that you learned here on this episode, okay? Was it uh, the coaching session she did with me? Or what was it that you learned here on this episode here today? We would appreciate that. Thanks for listening to the Who You Know Show podcast. My name is Trevor Houston, and if you've enjoyed this episode, consider subscribing wherever you listen and leave us a positive review to help us keep the mics on in the studio. Until next week, that's the show. It's all about who you know.